Welcome to episode 10 of the Yellow Ladybugs podcast series 4, supporting autistic girls and gender diverse students at school and beyond. This podcast series is brought to you by the Victorian Department of Education and Training. Having difficulty advocating for your rights or even knowing what your rights are, we chat with three experts who will share their incredible insights on supporting both parents and autistic students in advocating for what they need and deserve. This is a must-listen episode for all parents and carers. Natasha Stahili speaks with Karen Dimmick, Sarah Hayden, and Shanae Obotza-Russell. In the spirit of reconciliation, Yellow Ladybugs acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Natasha Stahili from Yellow Ladybugs. Welcome to this really important discussion where we will be looking at how to support parents to advocate for their children and themselves and also how we can help our autistic young people to develop their own self-advocacy skills. I'm joined by three wonderful advocates, all of whom have lived experience as parents but also bring considerable professional knowledge to this topic. First of all, a very warm welcome to Karen Dimmick. Karen is the CEO of the Association for Children with Disability, an organisation we love at Yellow Ladybugs. Karen's job involves her going to lots of meetings with government, MPs and ministers. None of these meetings are as hard as attending student support group meetings at school for her son. And as Karen notes, advocating for your own children takes courage, resilience and support. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Natasha. Hi, lovely to have you here. Next, I would like to welcome back Chennai Mupotsa. Chennai is the founder and co-director of Rainbow Muse Clinic, which offers art therapy, psychology, play therapy and yoga in an inclusive environment that celebrates diversity. She is also the founder of Tendara Pa Rainbow, a community-focused space for creativity, connection, culture and collective care. Chennai is passionate about working with those who are minoritized and have intersecting identities. She is also doing her PhD in community psychology and is mum to a magical toddler. Welcome, Chennai. Hello. Hello, lovely to have you back. <laughs> okay, and last but not least, welcome to another good friend of Yellow Ladybugs, Sarah Hayden. Sarah is a qualified social worker who has many years experience as an NDIS specialist support coordinator. Sarah has a special interest in trauma-informed care, neuroplasticity, developmental trauma, adoption, autism, complex family dynamics, and the justice system. She was a foster carer for many years and is also a mum to five amazing kids, including world-renowned actress, author, autism advocate, and Yellow Ladybugs ambassador, Chloe Hayden. And her two youngest children were adopted through intercountry adoption. Sarah is also one of the fiercest parent advocates we know. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Natasha. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you here. Yay. <laughs> okay. So we hear so often from our parent community that advocating for their autistic children is one of the most daunting, relentless and exhausting aspects of their parenting journey. Put simply, advocating for our children to not just survive, but to thrive in a system that is not built for them is hard. 
Given the scale and complexity of this topic, we have chosen to focus this panel discussion on advocating within the school system, but we know that the advice and insights shared will be applicable elsewhere. So let's get started. And we're going to start by drawing on one of the most common experiences we hear in our parent community, and that is how to advocate for our ladybugs who have a more internalised autistic presentation and whose support needs are often hidden. These are our young people who often appear to be coping, just fine at school. We hear time and time again that this perception, along with the fact that they don't qualify for disability funding is used as a reason for not giving them access to accommodations, supports and adjustments at school. I've asked our panellists to consider this from two perspectives. How to reassure parents who are feeling daunted and overwhelmed by this advocacy, advocacy task and what practical advice um, they would provide in terms of helping parents understand their rights, the rights of their children in the school system and how to work effectively with schools to put supports in place. Karen, we're going to start with you for this. Thank you so much. Look, this is such a big topic and advocating for your own children is incredibly emotional. Um, all of your hopes and dreams and seeing um, their successes and their struggles come into it. It's also about a relationship with other people um, who you're needing to sort of be able to communicate with uh, and work together with um, in terms of their teachers and the other people at school. And there's a power imbalance in terms of you as the family and the school staff. So pulling that all together makes for a really difficult exercise. So if it's feeling hard and overwhelming, um, th there are reasons behind that. The other thing that we sort of remind families is that advocacy is not a silver bullet. So if it's something that you haven't been able to do to date or you feel like you've tried it, it perhaps didn't go the way that you thought it might, um, it's, it's not something that uh, fixes everything straight away. It is a bit of a process and it's a bit of a, a sort of a long process throughout your child's schooling. So it's about doing it at the time that's right for you and that you've got the right sort of supports around you. I'm going to talk about a few practical things. And Natasha, I think you raised that really good point about um, our children who other people might not immediately acknowledge the, um, the issues that they're experiencing at school. And a couple of practical things I think you can have in your toolkit. The first is the wonderful Yellow Ladybugs uh, resource called Spotlight on Girls with Autism. This was done in partnership or is funded by the Department of Education. This is a great resource to take to schools. It's got their logo on the front. It's a way of educating teachers and other staff about autistic girls um, and how that might look. And it means that it's not just you saying it, it's coming from this really well-recognised um, uh, resource. Another practical step is to share some information about your child in ideally a one or two pager, starting with their strengths, but also articulating some of the issues that you're concerned about or that you might be seeing even if they're not quite identifying them there. If your child is accessing some support outside of school and you're prepared to share that, that can be helpful. It just lets the school know 
this is something that you're working with um, other people to help your child get support. So if they are an NDIS participant or if they're accessing some form of therapy or if they're seeing a psychologist or if a diagnostic process is underway, if you're prepared to share that information, it gives the school a fuller context about your child. And then there's, I guess, the steps of asking for a meeting to say that you're wanting to to get on top of um, any issues that might be emerging. If students are funded to get support at school, meetings should happen every term. The tricky part is often for students who don't meet the funding threshold but who absolutely need help. The guidelines say that those students should have meetings between parents and school staff as needed, but you often have to be really on the front foot to request those. Um, And if they haven't happened, suggesting it, trying to make a time, being clear about one or two things that you'd like to discuss, uh, and then really proactively uh, in the meeting suggesting, can we do this once a term, just to make sure that we are being proactive and putting in place the supports um, throughout the year as things change and new things start and other things sort of finish. So they would be some of my my first starting points in terms of advocating at school. Thank you so much. That's some really great advice. First of all, you've given some beautiful reassurance to parents. And I think it is important to remember that this is a process and your child's needs are going to change over their schooling journey and your approach is going to need to change and evolve as well. So really lovely advice there. And I'm so glad you mentioned our um, Spotlight on Autistic Girls at School resource, which is still going strong. We're actually in the process of updating the language on that resource too. So um, we've evolved as well. So stay tuned that and yeah just thank you there's some really good practical stuff you've you've put out there thank you for that Sarah we're going to jump to you now um so advocating is all about promoting and defending your child's basic rights their needs their interests and speaking up for them often when they can't but also preparing them and educating them about being able to speak up and advocate for themselves as they get older which is something that I've been passionate about and hence why I've got an amazing 25 year old who is able to advocate and speak up for herself because of watching what we've been able to do. So I think um, a few things that I will touch on, I think is it's really important for you to be really clear in knowing what you're advocating for and how to advocate. So for me, that's understanding the situation, thinking about what you want, um, presenting a solution. So there's no point jumping up and down about something if you sort of haven't come with a solution. Staying really calm, being organised and taking notes, having a support person there with you in meetings, and that's something that's well within your right to be able to do that. It might be an informal support like a friend. Um, It may be a professional, um, may be an advocate. It can be one of your therapy team or something. So making sure that you've got somebody there with you. But I think going in with really clear expectations around what you want Also knowing the rights, I think a lot of parents are fearful because they actually don't know what their rights are. So I really encourage people that I work with to understand, you know, that disability standards for education are part of the Commonwealth Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 and that this means that 
all students with a disability have the same educational opportunities and that reasonable adjustments must be made and these reasonable adjustments much, must balance everybody's needs. And that doesn't matter whether that means it's video captions for a deaf person or, you know, wheelchair accessibility for a child who's in a wheelchair or for our autistic kids, whatever it is that they may need. So, you know, it's really important. And I find for myself, often just throwing that kind of jargon around in meetings can really make people sit up and take notice that you actually do understand what you're talking about. Also being aware of the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child, which Australia stands by. Um, and this is that every child without discrimination must have their best interests. You know, the, the child must be the top priority in all decisions and actions that affect that child. And again, it's taking it back to, um, you know, reasonable adjustments being made for whatever that is, whether it's a cultural or, you know, um, disability, it doesn't matter. You know, all children's interests must be being met. And I think by, you know, as parents, it, it is very emotional, as Karen said, we can really get emotional about it. It's it's a very emotive thing, especially when you're fighting day in, day out. As Karen said, I really encourage people, particularly in education settings, to have, I encourage people to do an all about me document, which is usually just a one page with the child's photo, a bit about their, you know, their diagnosis um, and, you know, where they need support and what their strengths are and making sure that everybody who's working with that child um, has access to that and that as they go up through, you know, the year levels that that's adjusted and, and again, teachers get it. And also stipulating that, that if there's relief teachers or other teachers involved, that you want them to be able to access that as well so that your child has got somebody who understands them no matter what class they go into. So it's just really, yeah, all about just being clear, calm, concise, um, following things up in writing and and knowing, you know, having your knowledge. Yeah, some great practical advice there. That is a phenomenal checklist of all the things that we can be doing. And I think just on that kind of that all about me profile, which both you and Karen have mentioned, one thing that I do and from the youngest age is involve my daughter in that. It is her document. It is her needs, her things she finds hard, what her strengths are. And I think it's really, really powerful to present that to schools that this comes from the child, it's their voice. Um, so I love that. You mentioned so much there. And I think going in with a solution, going in with ideas, this is how we can work together to, to solve this problem is really, really fantastic. And knowing your rights, and I'm so glad you mentioned those key pieces of legislation, which, um, yeah, it can give you so much power to, um, to uh, sort of speak to your child's needs there. And I think one of the hardest things is staying calm in a highly emotional and um, sort of situation and having someone safe there with you can be one of the most effective ways to actually co-regulate, bring yourself down. Um, and, yeah, we've all had those moments where we haven't been. Oh, we've all, we've all lost our <laughs> shit when we've been dealing with We've, we've all been that mum or, you know. Oh, that, we have. We have. Okay. And then afterwards you go, hmm, maybe I should have approached that differently. Anyway, thank you so much for that. Um, Chennai, we're going to ask you to share any thoughts you have on this point. Um, I guess, yeah, it was um, lovely um, listening to both of you and I was, I guess, reflecting on um, all the times as part of someone's therapy team I've realised that, um, like, 
a child doesn't always have a completely uh, neuroaffirming team. So there's there can be sometimes mixed messages for for parents, which is really really confusing. Um, and I think it's so important that uh, parents know their right to sack people on their team who are not aligned and um, who, I guess, collude with a system that might normalise asking things of children which aren't fair. Because, yeah, sometimes you can go to a care team meeting and there's messaging around changing and manipulating your child to be different rather than taking that advocacy approach. Um, and sometimes going into a school, I think um, I also encourage parents to know that they can, when they're feeling exhausted and when things feel tricky, that that team can do some of that advocacy with them and do some of the, the kind of emailing and chasing up. Um, sometimes when I go into a school, I met with a, a kind of um, de defensiveness and then I say, Let, let's work together. Like I'm here to support the parent, the child, the school. Like it can be a really collaborative approach of like information sharing and working together um, and having a foundation of a supportive community for that parent is so important because so much exhaustion can come from um, fighting alone. And I think if someone is watching the Yellow Ladybugs conference, then perhaps they're already part of a supportive community um, where the language used and what's normal is the, the kind of things that were being stated before. Every child has the right to be able to learn and have necessary and reasonable accommodations. But I'm so taken aback so often by how many parents don't know that, like don't know um, their rights and don't know that we can hold systems accountable. Um, there's so much, I guess, ableism around that we can, within those moments of exhaustion, switch back to the shoulds. Um, they should whatever or should whatever. And I'm like, no shoulds. Um, every individual child needs to be supported to be able to thrive. And in systems where Teachers are exhausted, like everybody's tired. Sometimes we want the easy way out and we just kind of need to pause and like everyone co-regulate, everyone just be like, why Why did we all start in the first place? Why did you get into teaching? You, what, is, what is the purpose of us being here and how can we take a step back, breathe and harness the resources available to us to best support children? Um, I think that another thing is, um, like, as you mentioned in my intro, like I'm, I'm a, a PhD student, I need accommodations even. And when I first asked for um, what I needed, which is, oh, maybe I can't like physically attend all spaces, sensory overload, a whole range of things. Um, the messaging I got is that's not an appropriate thing for an adult doing higher degree research to ask. Um, so there was like this shaming, this you sh this is basic, you should be able to do this. And similar to what you mentioned before, I just went on websites, I got all my documentation in order, I read um, the actual stance the university have themselves on people's rights and I handed back their information and I said, your response doesn't align with your very own policies. 
Um, and in the end, I was we were able to work together to modify it. And I remember saying, yeah, I can, I can do, I can achieve amazing things. I just can't do it if you make me sit in a brightly lit room on an uncomfortable chair with a million sounds and bad acoustics and a whole range of other things. That is such a great perspective, Chennai. Thank you so much for that. And that point about collaboration really hits home. And whether it's the more intangible, just knowing that you're part of a community as a parent who's struggling to advocate, that you're not alone, that there are lots of people out there doing going through the same thing. So we're going to look at a couple of key advocacy situations, which we often face um, as parents. And We'd like to look at two particular scenarios here. Um, the first one is what advice do you have for parents who are preparing to go into a proactive proactive advocacy meeting at school? This might include requesting an individual education plan or attending student support group meetings where goals, reasonable adjustments for the child are established. How do we work towards our children getting the needs, they, the, the supports they need to thrive to do so from a strengths-based perspective and where their right to their autistic identity is forefront in any of the goals that are developed for them that they are neuroaffirming. So Sarah, we'll get you to kick off with that one. Sure. Thanks, Natasha. Um, yeah, great question. I think um, when we were looking at some of the sort of speaker prompts and a little bit more about this question, we sort of discussed about how how do we make it clear that our child is, is not fine at school. One of the most common things I hear in meetings with families and certainly myself in the early days when Chloe was at school um, is that you would get parents almost mockingly saying to yourself or, or other people, oh, that's fine. That's funny. They're totally fine at school, you know, and then sort of almost implying that there's obviously a problem at home. And, you know, I think for me, um, I just think it's so important that schools need to be educated on what I've always referred to as the Coke bottle effect, you know, where our children are shaken up all day long with the lid on and holding it together. And the minute they walk in the door from home, they explode and, you know, it's epic meltdowns and it's, you know, we always get the worst of our child when the other people maybe get the best of their child. But what we're actually getting is the real, raw, honest child because they feel safe. So I, I'd like to assure parents that it's because your child feels safe with you, that they are able to, you know, let their true feelings and emotions out. And in fact, what they're doing at school all day long is masking and withholding their emotions, which is actually, as we know, a really negative thing, um, really bad for our children's mental health, really bad for our children's education, um, and actually not positive at, positive at all. And there's very few school meetings that I've been in that I haven't heard that exact thing. And I find it really infuriating that in this day and age, educators don't have that understanding that this is really common for autistic children. Most people, when you put it in that way, that you kind of see them go, oh, that's interesting. And again, following it up with some really clear resources, I find is really helpful, even a follow-up email, um, because I think it can be really degrading for parents to sort of have that implied to them that clearly, you know, they know how to parent the autistic child and the parents obviously don't, which is why they're, you know, seeing this behaviour at home. Um, so I find that a really good time to actually educate on that. In terms of, um, again, you know, advocating and, and IEPs and SSGs and things like that, again, requesting to take a support person with you 
to take notes, request minutes, everything in an email with the school, um, having really clear and concise goals and following that up if you do have any therapeutic supports or advocates working with them that sort of back up what those goals are and, you know, ensuring that they're actually relevant to the child. So, again, one of the analogies I like to use is, you know, telling a child who's in a wheelchair because they're not able to walk that their goal for this year is going to be that they just have to get out of that wheelchair and run three laps around the basketball court is actually absurd. And while that might be appropriate for another child, it's actually just would be ridiculous for that child. So, again, going back to the Disability Standards for Education and the um, United Nations Convention of the Rights for the Child is ensuring that those goals are actually suitable for the child whatever that child's needs are um, and that can be you know not just with your autistic child but I face the same kinds of things with my two youngest children that were adopted through into country and spent six years in an orphanage so you know it's cultural or it's disability or whatever it is it's ensuring that those goals are actually um, attainable and practical and relatable to what your child's disability is one of the frustrations I have, I hate that, you know, within the NDO system or the education system, for us to advocate and get the support for our people is that we have to have the worst day, worst case scenario for everything. Um, it's how, as I said, the NDIS works in terms of funding. Um, and it's exactly why I advise people not to bring the child or the person into a whole meeting. I actually don't think it's healthy at all in an NDIS meeting or an education meeting to be sitting there speaking about all of the deficits and the, and the support that they need. I don't think that's healthy. I think it's fine to have the person in the room to discuss strengths and to find out and put a face to the name and see that this is actually a real human being that we're talking about, not just an NDIS number or a student number. Look, so many great points there. <laughs> um, yeah, you've, you've touched on so much and it's very nuanced, a lot of it around um, focusing on your child's strengths and celebrating those, but also recognising where they do struggle, where they have challenges and where they do need extra support. And I think um, your example around the, the goals we set for our children is a really good one. And we are huge advocates here at LA Ladybugs that goals for autistic girls should never, ever be encouraging them to mask um, appropriate social communication. All of those sort of neurotypical expectations should not be part of the goal setting process for them. And we know we've got a long way to go before we get um, get sort of that, um, that stance really into the system. So thank you, Sarah. Chennai, we're going to jump quickly to you for this question and then we'll go to Karen. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was thinking how with that experience, the, the Coke bottle and the experience parents have, um, I have had times where, um, like I've had the privilege of working with lots of um, clients from the time they were quite little and watch them grow and um, so I have built a similar uh, built a relationship where I do get to really witness the coke bottleness as an external kind of third party and I have been to school and watched and sat in a classroom with a child and watched the mask and then seeing pickup happen and then seeing that absolute volcanic volcanic explosion off the shaken coke bottle so it's so real and as someone who can experience that and then be able to go back to the teacher and say, they are not making this up. Like even I, I never ever would have thought they were, 
But just so you know, like I lived it today um, and be able to have that um, have that relationship. And sometimes I've talked to teachers who have, when they've realised that, be like, oh, like been quite devastated because they care and they want the child to feel safe and to be able to um, be a part of the classroom. And I'm like, I didn't realise that. I've never actually known the real version of this of this child. Um, and that's, yeah, when you have um, good, when you have teachers that have the capacity to engage in that way and reflect. Um, and then embedding more of that, I guess, neuroaffirming practice across the school. With the deficit model, it's it's horrific. Um, when I write an NDIS report, it is like the worst day and the worst scenario because um, if you say all the best things, then a child may not get the support that they need. Um, and I completely agree with not exposing children to that language and, and that talk. Um, I also think from a very young age, we can bring in that social justice lens and and start to teach children and young people um, about the structures and the systemic things and say to children, oh, you know, sometimes we, we write these reports and explain the structures and the systems and say to like kiddos, like sometimes you experience distress, but it's not anything inherent in you. It's because the world was made for one type of brain and your magical brain, when it's in environments that aren't kind of supportive of it, you do experience things that when people observe them externally, that external observation is pathologized and labeled. And that's actually what ends up in these reports. It's not any failure by you. It's just a very appropriate response that you're having to situations that just aren't fair. Um, so taking the onus away from um, the child or the young person that becomes the, the, the symptom holder um, that is viewed as a problem and saying you are not the problem. The fact that we have, you know, to following on from that wheelchair analogy, a, a, a world that doesn't have enough ramps and doesn't have enough accommodations. And when you communicate your struggle, um, the response is, well, that's a you problem. And it's it's not a you problem. It's a societal problem. It is all of our problem to, to work on and fix. Um, I guess the other thing I'd say going into meetings and stuff of any kind, I, I always say with parents, um, therapists like a child's therapy team are, if they're working from a family inclusive perspective, are there to support the whole family, including mum. If a parent has a meeting, I am happy to like prep with the parent and get those points down and make sure everything is clearly articulated because people don't always read the reports. They don't always read the email. So you can send as much paperwork as you like. I find all the time people just don't read it. So really preparing from a calm space to get all the points across that are that are necessary and important um, and making sure you feel heard and supported in the process. Thank you. You've covered so much there and you've given a really beautiful perspective once again um, 
our children are not, you're not the problem. That is such a powerful point there. And I think all our children need to know that. And I think you've hinted at what we need, which is that systemic change, cultural change, that all children know that in a school and out in the world. Um, yeah, lots and lots of wonderful um, insights there. So thank you so much. So Karen, we'll jump to you for the end of this question. Great. Well, Chen, I used the fantastic example of going back to the university uh, policy um, when doing some self-advocacy. And I just want to start with the uh, autism education strategy. And it says, as its opening line, that the autism education strategy celebrates the diversity that autistic students bring to schools and recognises that they have different lived experiences. You know, that is in place because of the amazing work of organisations like Yellow Ladybugs and many, many others. Uh, and I think it is a good place to start in your relationship with the school um, and to sort of bring that along as a resource. While concepts like neuroaffirming might be new for school staff to hear about, strengths-based approaches is is language they're pretty familiar with um, and uh, and talking about your child's strengths uh, is something that um, can be a really strong sort of starting point. In terms of just some practical tips around those things like student support group meetings, individual education plans, reasonable adjustments, I'm going to do a bit of a, a self-promo um, here in that uh, the Association for Children with Disability, ACD, we have resources on each of those things on our website, some fairly plain English fact sheets just explaining what they are, what a good IEP looks like, um, the template for that, what is involved, uh, also examples of reasonable adjustments that you can ask for because uh, sometimes just getting a getting a sense of what is possible um, and bringing that to the meeting can be really powerful. We also have fact sheets on things like toileting and eating support at school and these are often issues that are really um, can be more tricky with autistic children who some days may not need the support but do need it others. Um, and we address that and talk about how a student health plan can be put in place. So just having taking that time, which is always tricky as families, but to um, sort of educate yourself, your own homework, to really understand the processes, to chat to people at the conference to hear about how they've approached these, the types of reasonable adjustments they've gotten. Those things can really help prepare you. I will give one very, one very practical final suggestion, and that is around the meeting itself. These can be face-to-face -face, and you absolutely can have a support person there in the room with you, but increasingly they happen online. Um, and if you prefer to do it online and you're doing it from the comfort of your own home, that can also just be a really great way to do it. But it is good to ask for every person in the meeting being on one screen. It can be really difficult to, to read the room if there's a group of school staff in one room gathered around one screen and you can barely sort of see their faces or tell who's speaking. So if you are doing a, an online meeting, request that each person is joining the meeting from their own screen. And it's kind of that sort of classic gallery view, 
um, so that you can all have a sort of a, you know, a stronger opportunity to be able to um, listen and understand where each other are coming from. Yay, look, you've given some really fantastic practical advice there and all the resources which ACD have created are fantastic and we will absolutely be sharing links to all of those because we always point families in your direction and onto the ACD website. It's such a good place to start and we're very, very lucky in Victoria to have you um, and also your reference to the autism education strategy, which again is Victorian specific. Um, it's a tremendous start point for um, reforming the way our autistic children are supported at school and we would love to see other states pick up that too so lots more work to be done but it's a wonderful start so we're going to jump to our next scenario um, and this one is advocating when there is an issue at school and where your child's support needs are clearly not being met or where they are experiencing discrimination examples of this could include bullying behavioral issues or exclusion practices. This can be so very hard and we know that it pushes so many of our parents to breaking point. So what advice do you have for parents who find themselves in this very daunting situation? And Karen, we're going to jump back to you to start that. I think in these really difficult situations, you absolutely need your allies around you. Uh, there are advocacy services available for free for families with autistic children across Victoria. Uh, ACD is one of them. There are also, uh, I guess, ones that are placed perhaps more in regional centres and things like that. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a, a contact list in the resources. How we um, provide advocacy support is largely by talking to families over the phone and listening deeply to the situation, helping uh, families identify what the key issues are, really coming back to the students' rights um, and those, you know, those really important things that Sarah talked about before and planning a way forward. And so having an advocate alongside you like that as a sort of someone to coach you and empower you can be really, really beneficial. Um, and obviously a whole range of therapists also provide that type of support. And if you've got that through your therapy services, that's fantastic too. In terms of having someone um, come to a meeting with you, that is absolutely allowed. So the guidelines allow for a support person to be in student support group meetings. So having that person alongside you with that professional expertise, um, I think can be you know, a real assistance um, for the very difficult situations. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's um, that's some really good concrete advice there. I thank you so much for that. And there are advocacy services, and we'll share as much of that information as we can because this is often a situation where you do need additional and absolutely entitled to that additional support. So thank you so much, um, Chennai. We're going to ask you to um, respond to this question, and then Sarah. Um. So, like, um, what I I'm working with a, a family or a child like when I am alerted to things that go on um, I'm pretty much ready to go in like a little pit bull um, because it's 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 infuriating and heartbreaking um, so there's so much I think it's really important for families and parents to know um, they can speak out and say these things and when they when it feels too hard, um, there can be support in taking the steps around 
I guess, holding people accountable because it can be a very gaslighting effect when you're repetitively given the same messaging, which is be different, do different, that kind of thing. Like sometimes I meet teenagers who have all sorts of um, clinical labels and it's like, no, this child has autistic burnout from 14, 15 years of being asked to shut it down, mask, do this at this time, like everybody else, do this, do that. And all of that accumulates to a huge amount of distress that comes out in all sorts of different ways, which then become different, um, I guess, mental health labels and presentations, which then need further this and that and the whole thing explodes. And it's like, no, actually, if we if we support pe um, young people and care for them and nurture them, um, all of those things might still co-occur and it's not a bad thing that they occur by any means. Um, it's just really thinking about that saying, like, if a flower doesn't grow, we don't, like, yell at the flower, grow. We look at the environment and we change the environment. And I think a lot of the time if we modify the, the, the ecosystem around a child, we can prevent a lot of the ways in which distress shows up. Thank you so much for those insights. Um, Sarah, we'll go to you now. Um, so firstly, in my experience, both personally and professionally, um, bullying of our autistic children is often very covert. Um, our children are often not as manipulative and capable of twisting things around and are often victims of bullying um, in a way that the bullies seem to get away with it for quite a long time. And as Chennai said, I've found that many schools sort of almost gaslight the parents into believing that actually, you know, it's not happening or it's not the way that you're saying it is or the child. Um, so again, I would um, take notes of what's happening so you have evidence. You know, every time your child comes home and says something is happening, I would continue to write it so that it's not just sort of a general remark of they're being bullied or discriminated you've actually got evidence that on this day this happened you know that kind of stuff so that you've got it all um have everything in writing um again referring back to you know the disability discrimination act um if they're experiencing discrimination or bullying or whatever it is i would be going immediately don't let it wait to the school or you know childcare setting or university or whatever it is um if that doesn't work straight to the education department of your area um, and then followed up by a formal complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission. Again, having everything in writing, making it really clear as to what's happening um, and what your expectations are and that you've got the evidence. Um, again, you know, getting somewhere like the Australian, uh, sorry, Association for Children with a Disability to help you advocate, um, you know, knowing your rights, having everything really clear, having that support person. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that you are not the failure. It's actually the education system that's the failure. I think our education system is, in Australia, absolutely appalling for anybody with any type of additional particularly hidden need. Um, it's, you know, in my opinion, it's based on the old, you know, sort of structured prison system kind of thing. And for most of our kids, it actually just doesn't work. And, you know, yes, sometimes it can be the particular school or childcare where moving schools to a, a better um, school may be an option, but ultimately it could be that your child is actually just not going to fit into this education system of the 9 till 3, 35 days a week. And 
you know, sometimes um, leaving school or withdrawing is actually the only answer. And while this can feel like a failure, I can say that it's actually the most um, inspiring and strong parenting and advocacy that you'll see for a family to actually go, do you know what, this is not going to fit. I'm not going to fit my child, you know, fitting a square peg into a round hole. It's actually not going to work. And it doesn't matter how much I jump up and down, you know, when you're pushing for change, you have to know where your limit is and where your own energy and that of the child. And you actually can't fix a broken system. So one person themselves cannot fix an entire broken system. And that's what we're dealing with. That's the reality of it. And yes, there are amazing teachers. And yes, there are amazing schools. And sometimes you can get lucky and you might have one fantastic teacher and for a while things are great. Or you may have found a school you know, that is fantastic. Every teacher, every year, if you have, I'd be amazed to hear about it because I'm yet to hear of one. Um, but ultimately, you know, it sometimes advocating um, is doing something radical. And that radical could be just going, you know what, enough is enough. I've been fighting day in, day out. I'm watching my child in permanent autistic burnout and masking. And actually the best and strongest thing I can do right now is just to withdraw. And, you know, I'll finish what I'm saying by um saying and this has been shared in in Chloe's book so she's happy for me to share it but it was actually Chloe's educational psychologist who diagnosed her when she was 12 years of age and she was going through really significant mental health issues around school bullying and and refusal and the educational psychologist we were seeing worked for the department of education she actually said to me if you do not pull Chloe out of school today you will not have a Chloe anymore and for somebody who was so against homeschooling or schooling, you know, anything other than a traditional school system, myself and my husband, we had never considered it. Hearing a professional in that context say it so clearly and so black and white and just made me realise this is what we have to do. And, you know, as most people would know, it was the single best and most positive and strongest parenting decision we have ever made for any of our children is just to go, we have tried that many schools and none of them are working and we are watching our child literally fade away with anorexia and mental health issues all related to school school system. The best thing that we could do was pull her out and we did and she has absolutely thrived and blossomed ever since. Wow, yes. <laughs> um, your lived experience insights here are so powerful and I've, I I know Chloe's story. I've, I've talked to you before and it just, yeah, there's, it, it's so important to, to, in the end, be able to say enough is enough. Um, and we are all for flexible, flexible education options. It's so important. There is no one size fits all system. Um, so let's be far more creative. So, so parents like Sarah have options and know that it's okay to pursue those options. So thank you so much for that. Look, we're going to jump to our next question. Um, one of the biggest advocacy challenges many of our parents face is when their autistic child is experiencing school can't. We have talked about this a lot during this conference and it is very clear that when our children can't attend school, it is because it is not safe for them and that they are struggling in a system not set up for them. We also know that this may be seen in a very different way by some schools who are focused on attendance targets or still coming at this from the perspective of truancy. So I would love you all to share a brief thought on how we can equip parents to advocate in this situation and get schools to understand what is really behind their child's absence and to put strategies in place to support them. So Karen, we'll start with you on this. 
Great. Thanks, Natasha. Look, I think um, one of the first steps is about educating the school, which is always hard to do. Um, and I will just point to one resource, and look, it does use the term school refusal, but it is a specific resource about school refusal and autistic students from the Raising Children Network. And it does make it very clear that it's not truancy and that it comes from the environment and the child's experience of that. I think the, you know, another really important part of this is to understand from the student themselves what they're experiencing and, and how that is impacting them. And obviously that can itself be really hard to, to articulate. Uh, one um, other resource I'd like to point to is the Inclusive Student Voice Toolkit. This was actually developed by the Department of Education and it uses some really creative ways to capture student experiences. So whether it is pictures across the school and students put red and green dots about places that feel okay or don't feel okay, whether it's interviewing a soft toy as a character about their experience at school, whether it is doing a mud map and, um, and, uh, and sort of, again, trying to map some feelings on that, giving the student a, a camera to, to photograph their own experience. There are creative ways to draw out um, perhaps, you know, what the really um, key issues are that do need to be addressed. And so I think my final thing to talk about in this space is what schools can do because through our work with families, we hear of just a whole range of adjustments that schools make that initially they might be like, oh, no, we're not doing that, but actually they can. So schools can allow students to wear the PE uniform all day, every day. Schools can let students have a specific block of toilets that are their preferred ones to use. Schools can move um, drawers or lockers into places that are much quieter. Schools can allow students to wear headphones at any time that they want. Uh, schools can allow students to be able to simply have a, a form of indicating that they do need to take a short break from the classroom. Schools can have quiet sensory spaces at all uh, break times. There are a raft of other things that, uh, that families have put in place that have worked really well for their children. Uh, and I think it's, it is a, you know, learning from each other what they can be um, is a really powerful step. Amazing. I love that. Such a great list of things schools can do that can help, hopefully help our children who are experiencing school can't find a way into school can, wanting to be there, being able to be there. So thank you. That is great advice. Um, Chennai, do you have a, a brief thought on this topic? Um, yes. I, I think particularly with younger children, it is really helpful to go, physically go into spaces with them and observe things because um, at times I meet little ones who want like want to go to school and play and there's aspects of it that they like but then there's other things that are really really difficult but the child doesn't know how to necessarily communicate it especially around sensory stuff so if um like before we fully understand how a child experiences their senses and how the compounding effect of that 
can lead to dysregulation. We just know there's certain times where we have um, big, big behaviours and then we, we overthink the big behaviours. Um, but sometimes it can be really, really simple. It can be really, I, I've had times where I found a ticking clock just going in the background has a cumulative effect off on, on a child's nervous system where they're struggling to cope and um, modifications can be made um, all over to help the child feel more comfortable. Um, having a relationship with well-being, knowing that, yeah, they can have breaks and, and go and decompress, creating like visual tools or whatever is a, the best way to communicate for that child for them to express so that they don't have to verbally communicate um, their distress when it's hardest um, and curating those for that individual child um, so that they're accessible and that they're confident to use them and they know that they can. Um, and also understanding um, the whole kind of um, physical body, sensory, everything, integrating and regulating everything throughout the day. Um, some kids need an aid to take them out of the classroom and just hop on a swing and um, just have that moment to integrate in that way, like understanding the individual needs and then also communicating that to the school in a way that this seems like an inconvenience, but if you just do these little things, what you're going to get is going to be beyond, like, worth it. Um, so, yeah, that's all yeah. I want. Fantastic. I really love all of that. And you've really, I love your perspective around the sensory impact of being in a classroom. That's so easy to overlook, I think, and it can make such a huge difference when when accommodations are made around that. So thank you so much for that. Um, Sarah, jumping to you. Thanks, Natasha. Um, yeah, I often wonder, are we giving autistic children PTSD from school and how many children, you know, do have it um, as a result of school? And yeah, as a social worker, I often liken it to you know, the trauma response that our children are facing at school, depending on how significant the impact of what's going on at school. You know, we would never tell a colleague to keep going back to the workplace day after day if we knew that they were in a toxic workplace where they were getting bullied. We would never tell a woman just to put up with being in a domestic violence relationship and just keep going back to it. Yet for many of our autistic kids, sending them to school day after day can feel very much like somebody having to turn up to work every day where they're, you know, where they're being clearly bullied and discriminated against. Um, when we don't understand autistic kids and their needs, we're creating a really toxic environment for them. Um, when we're making them mask all day long at school, we're encouraging them to have significant mental health issues. When we're responding without understanding, we're diminishing the person and their self-esteem. Um, providing an environment that's sensitive to the needs of autistic children is likely to benefit all students. Um, being autistic can feel like you're two completely different people. So the person that you really are and then the person that you need to become to survive at school, and this takes us back to the Coke bottle effect I was saying later, you know, our kids are having to pretend to be someone they are just to survive all day. Um, and because of that, they're often labelled oppositional, avoidant, uncooperative if they do see the side where they're not masking. Um, and I'll finish it up by saying I found a fabulous Facebook post that went viral by a teacher 
named Karen Blatcher in October 2020, and she said, all my students are neurotypical, but my classroom looks very much like a special ed classroom. I teach mindfulness and emotional literacy. I have a calm corner and I use it to teach self-regulation. I provide fidgets and sensory toys and my students are thriving. It made me realise something. When we treat autistic children the way the world tells us to treat neurotypical children, they suffer. But I've never once encountered a child of any age or any neurotype who doesn't absolutely thrive when they too are treated like an autistic person should be treated, which is with open communication, adaptive expectations and respect for self-advocacy and self-regulation. Maybe neurodiverse people aren't the only ones who've been misunderstood and mistreated all this time. They are just the ones who feel it the most. And I think that just sums it up. If we could get every classroom and every teacher doing that, which is not hard, how 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 much more would everybody thrive? Absolutely. That is such a powerful call to action and to enacting positive change. Absolutely love that. Thank you so much. So, look, we're going to shift focus now and look a little more closely at family or community-based advocacy. Um, we're aware that many families do face additional barriers in terms of how they can advocate for their children. Um, so we're wondering if you can share your thoughts um, quickly on the impact of things like ethno-cultural differences and perhaps also when parents are neurodivergent themselves. So, Chennai, we're going to start with you for this. I guess... When you look at it from an intersectional framework and the systemic oppression that ableism creates for neurodivergent people, when we bring in cultural diversity as well, um, it's another additional intersection of, of experiencing oppression, particularly uh, even more so for families that have um um, different migrant backgrounds, but then also when there's a refugee background and that kind of thing. So it is a lot like families that I encounter who are not only navigating what it means to have a neurodivergent child, but also one with different cultural needs and a different context and different everything. Um, it can be quite um, debilitating. And when I think of how it is neurodivergent folks struggle um, in certain situations. It's because a lot of the ways in which we're meant to behave and act are constructs. So that part of the battle of being autistic is there's a set of rules, societal rules that people are following. And it's like, oh, I, I struggle to get the memo. Like we've all mutually agreed. We come upon each other and we make senseless chit chat. I missed the brief, like, um, when you add to that the cultural context of the rules being outside of not only not having the rules, but the rules being outside of what is the rules where you came from, it's like multifold. Um, and I see that a lot myself. There's ways in which as a neurodivergent person, I don't, I'm not able to engage in particular ways or do particular things. But it's also true to me as someone who was born in Zimbabwe. Like um, I have a two-year-old who doesn't eat with a, a spoon because when he does eat, it's a it's a likes to like get in there with his fingers. But also as a Zimbabwean person, I didn't eat with a spoon at that age either. So it's not he's not not meeting a milestone. It's not a milestone in my cultural context and it's not relevant. So explaining where neuroaffirming also meets cultural competency um, is just a whole other minefield. 
um, and also the barriers to accessing support. So I meet so many families who um, from diverse communities who do not have NDIs, who do not have any kind of support because there is just, there's even less access, there's less information, there's less of everything. Um, and then, of course, part of the migrant experience is when you come to Australia from somewhere else, your very survival requires you to assimilate. So as a, as a neurotypical migrant, it's there's a form of masking required to become Australian enough to survive in Australia. So there's often neurodivergent children um, may have their communities, their diverse communities, wanting them to mask because it's it's not about don't be you. It's none of us can be us because if we're us, like the news will say bad things about us or people will say don't speak that language or eat that food or that kind of stuff. So really understanding the multi-layers of systemic oppression and um, I think one of the things um, one of the things we're passionate about here at our clinic is um, prioritising first and foremost First Nations people and then uh, people from diverse backgrounds because it can be really hard to find safe places. And I think often when someone has um, a, a complex complex background, um, it's all put to trauma, like um, things like oppositional defiance disorder, which are trauma responses rather than PDA or whatever. Again, these are just labels. It's it's the whole thing of these things happen to them and now this thing is wrong with them. And it's like it can coexist that someone is neurodivergent and has trauma and like all of these things can coexist and we can um, and a lot of the time labels have their uses but we can be consultative in how we use labels to get people the support we need. So it is not for um, services and, and people to place meaning upon experiences for people who are othered in all these other ways. It's about saying these are all very real experiences you're having and being marginalised from multiple different angles of course, it's going to come up in lots of different ways. What are the ways in which we can unpack this? And we're going to have to use some deficit language to get the supports required. But people can also have choice. People can have choice in um, understanding um, where all of these things, how they come together, the full massive umbrella of being a human who just is not able to get in line because I think part of the time the most successful neurotypicals are the ones who it's like, damn, this is what we're doing. We get in line, we do this, we do this, we do that, whatever. Okay, you do all of that. Um, and there's different degrees of struggling in that for a multitude of reasons. And um, as we put more onus on the structures which, which cause the, dis, the distress and the harm, we can also allow people to feel empowered, feel empowered in creating their own narratives. Um, I think we need more and more um, just across the board 
um, inclusive frameworks that bring together all the ways in which, you know, class, gender, I love um, yellow ladybugs and, um, you know, it's girls and um, gender diverse young people, like looking at gender diversity, cultural diversity, um, looking at class systems like the fact that some people are not assessed because they have no access to an assessment. So NDIS is not even a possibility and they're different rules at different schools. So sometimes I encounter families who, um, and I am not an expert in all things because no one is. And sometimes I'm on the Department of Ed website and trying to find out why this school has AIDS and funding and this one doesn't and this. And if you go to this catchment, you can get this. And if you go to that, and um, there's a, a lot of inequality and unfairness and it is really confusing. And in those moments where I've Google till the cows come home and my brain hurts, that's when I end up on like other people's websites going, we need an advocate or an expert or a consultant or whatever. So thank you so much for giving such a detailed answer to that. Really, really appreciate that. Um, Karen, did you have anything you wanted to quickly add to this question? I was just going to say um, there's a wonderful organisation called Vietnamese Families with Special Needs and they've come together to support one another. And they then came to us and said, oh, could you help us learn to be good support people going to education meetings? Um, because I think they really saw the power in having someone side by side but they wanted to sort of know what that support person role meant and what they could do. So I think it's particularly where you yourself are autistic, where you're coming from a culturally diverse background, having your, your ally, um, your support person is really important. Um, but you can involve them at all steps of the process in terms of if you are getting some advocacy support, two of you can be there or listening in, um, you know, having the conversations with therapists so that you're as much as possible together feeling um, confident about that role. Fantastic. Thank you again, Karen, for giving some really practical advice based on what your amazing organisation does. Um, and it's great to know that there are practical ways to, to, to sort of go through these things. So thank you. Um, Sarah, did you want to add anything, any last comments on this? Yeah, sure, Natasha. My experience with, work, with working with families with cold backgrounds is they obviously already experience many unique challenges, which can be lack of social supports, a sense of displacement, recovery from torture and trauma, discrimination, migration stress. Um, many um, cultures that I find that I work with, I find that they have um, shame around disabilities um, and and an understanding of knowing their rights and what they can access and filling out the unbelievable paperwork for people like NDIS and Centrelink and things like that. Understanding their attitudes to autism is important because they will influence whether or not the children are firstly diagnosed and um, understanding what kind of support is available to them. So fantastic. Thank you so much again for those insights um, based on your work. Really, really appreciate that. We're going to finish with a question on teaching and supporting our autistic children to advocate for themselves. 
This is such an important skill, not only because our young people have no choice but to navigate a world that is not set up for them, but also because self-advocacy is such an important component of building a positive self-identity and things like autonomy and agency. How do we best work with our yellow ladybugs to help them develop these skills? What would you like to say directly to our young people? So Chennai, we're going to start with you again for that. Um, I guess like I, um, working as a therapist, like I do tell um, kids that me and all their other therapists like work for them and if we're not doing our job, uh, they can find people who are able to and I have a, a beautiful 14-year-old ladybug who fired somebody who um, was on their team and not supporting them and um, young people and children are well within their rights to do things like that um, and it is our responsibility I guess to empower them as best as we can. Um, so part of I guess that therapeutic process is not um, trying to um, is of course supporting them and creating tools and all that kind of stuff but also yeah teaching them that advocacy and it's really really important and I guess to those um ladybugs I'd say you are amazing and awesome and magical and um absolute perfection and um you have a right to all of the things that you need and you when you don't know how to advocate ask the the people around you to, to support you, give you the language, give you whatever, regulate you, whatever it is you need. That's what we're, we're here to do. And it's a process of fertilization, fertilizing young people to grow and grow and grow. And as they grow, have these skills and be building these skills throughout their entire lives. I love that. That is so beautiful. Such wonderful advice. Thank you. And I love the growing metaphor. That's I love that. Um, thank you. Sarah, any last thoughts here for you? Thanks, Natasha. Yeah, I think it's important um, when our children see us advocating for them and using our voice, it gives them permission to use their voice also and to learn that that's, that's what we do and that it's okay to do that. From a very, very young age, we've taught Chloe to use that voice and understand that asking for adjustments or support is okay. As I said earlier, we would never, ever feel the need to justify why a child who can't walk would need a wheelchair or a child with bad eyesight needs glasses or a diabetic child needs insulin. Um, it should be no different at all, advocating for our autistic child or having them ask um, for an adjustment and that just because their disability is invisible doesn't mean that they are any less entitled to the reasonable adjustment. In my experience, what autistic and neurodivergent people can do is far more amazing than what they can't do. And, you know, as the title of Chloe's book, Different Not Less, that's that's what we've always raised all of our children, but particularly Chloe from a young age to say, you know, you are different. That doesn't mean less. It's different that you might not be able to, even at 25, read an analogue clock that your 10-year-old sister can. It doesn't matter because the things that you can do are far cooler than being able to read an analogue clock that everybody can do. So it's really, I think it's more around not just advocating but really educating our children that they are enough and that, like Chennai said earlier about milestones that don't mean anything to her, that they don't have to fit the boring boxes, that they can actually be different and, you know, that we're teaching our children that different is not less and that it's actually something to be celebrated and what a bloody boring world it would be if everybody was just grey and bland and fit the box. It's much more exciting to be able to do the incredible things than the tick box things. 
Absolutely. Um, so true. And look, Chloe is living proof of how powerful self-advocacy can be for our young people. And she is forging a path and so many of our ladybugs are stepping, well, not stepping in behind her, but she has opened that pathway for them and it's amazing. So thank you so much for that. Giving them permission, I think, Natasha, yes. giving them permission. Yes. I think one, yeah. of, one of the most exciting things for us is just seeing every day so many people saying thank you for giving permission for our daughter, you know, and, and people going to school and being proud to be autistic. Yep. like Chloe and she never had that person and yeah. I think that's what we need to do is put role models and show our kids that all of these incredible people doing amazing things not in spite of but because of that's that's the key absolutely yep nailed it thank you Karen I'm going to jump to you thank you I think the first step of self-advocacy is telling your own story and that there are so many creative ways to do that um, it doesn't just mean speaking up, it can mean showing photos, doing drawings, you know, doing a, uh, writing a, a story about your experiences. Um, connecting with others is also such an important part of that self-advocacy um, skill set and learning from others that are doing it too and, uh, and Yellow Ladybugs and other um, autistic mentoring programs really provide some great opportunities for that. Uh, we've said before that we're so we're kind of lucky in Victoria and the other thing we're lucky to have is the Youth Disability Advocacy Service, YDAS, and they offer a youth leadership program for young people with all different types of dis disability and neurodivergent young people. And, you know, it is a way of uh, learning about self-advocacy as a young person um, with a group of others. So looking for those opportunities, I think, is a um, is a really amazing sort of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, amazing, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it's, it follows on from what Sarah was saying about um, having role models and knowing that there are other people out there. And we see that with our young people in Yellow Ladybugs every day. And you only have to go to our teen panel for this year, which I hope everyone watches. We didn't have Chloe in it this year. She forged that path for our young people and we had four amazing new young autistic people step in to talk about their own experiences and it was just incredible it really was so um yeah now look thank you so much everyone we're done we've wrapped it up we've talked around the world and back again I think um we could talk for much longer but um we've run out of time so look thank you so much thank you Karen so much for um making time for this today with all of your amazing insights thank you Sarah thank you Chennai you're all incredible we love all of you. You can come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for episode 10 of the podcast series. Taken from the Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School and Beyond Conference, held by the Yellow Ladybugs in 2023. Please share what you have learned with your community. We have attached to this podcast resources for further information. We hope you enjoyed this podcast series brought to you by the Victorian Department of Education and Training and the Yellow Ladybugs. <laughs>